I hope that you've studied ahead just a little bit. Each Wednesday night at prayer meeting, I put on the prayer list the scripture. And uh, perhaps you've heard that and uh, you've looked that up already. You've studied it beforehand. And uh, I want to encourage you to do that. And uh, find a way. And if you don't make it on Wednesdays and you want to know what the scripture is, call the church on Thursday mornings or text me. I'll do anything I can to get that information to you because uh, I'm not scared of you studying before you show up. I think it makes it more effective when we all are in God's word together. Speaking of God's word, I ask you to take it now and turn to John chapter 6. When you get to John chapter 6, we're going to pick back up where we left off last week, and we're going to pick up in verse 15. John chapter 6, picking up in verse 15. If you're grabbing that pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 1,228. 1228 in the pew Bible. Angela and I had uh, two opposite experiences occur in our lives all in the same afternoon. Tuesday of this week. I'll share with you what those are. We had a high point uh, moment on uh, Tuesday. During my cancer treatments, uh, I received many encouraging texts, calls, cards, gifts, visits, many from you, and I love you for it. Thank you so much for walking with me uh, during all of this. It was hardly a day we would go to the mailbox and not bring out mail, and there would be a card from someone in my church family reaching out to me to encourage me. Well, one day on one of these trips to the mailbox, I went, and that mailbox was especially full, and all these cards were clumped right in there together, and they were all in the same brown envelopes, and they pulled, I pulled them all out, and I was, as I was walking back up, I told you, that I think I said, I don't know how many cards I told you. I wrote my notes here, there was a boatload, but I have figured out now that I've counted it up, there were 16 cards on that day, all from the same address. So as I walked back to the house, I opened one card after another. It became this uh, thing that Angela and I would do. We would open up the cards and read them and share them and be encouraged by them. And one card after another, each card was from a girls softball player from Macon County High School. That's in Lafayette, Tennessee. I did not know where Lafayette was or where Macon County High School was at the time. And each one had a very specific note written to me. It appears as though that the coach of that team knows somebody in this church and this person in this church shared with the coach what their pastor was going through. And this softball coach had gone through cancer himself and he wanted to do a good thing with his softball team. And so he shared with them about what was going on in my life. And they took time, all 16 players of this softball team wrote me individual cards to me. And they didn't even know me. And I was overwhelmed. And so Tuesday of this week, that was about almost three weeks ago I got these cards. But Tuesday of this week, Angela and I drove to Lafayette. We went to a softball game because I wanted to spend time thanking these 16 girls and this coach. And we got a chance to go there. And 
meet with the coach, and then the coach allowed me to have time with the entire team to be able to talk to them and encourage them. And then we, I got to be a team for part of the while, we all stood and prayed together in the clubhouse right there. And then Angela and I were, uh, we sat in the stands and we watched them play. And um, we were going to get the game ball if they had won, but they didn't win. But we enjoyed being there so much. And one of the higher points during this entire high point afternoon was we watched this pitcher of the game that was going to start the game and the catcher warm up. And they had this very unique routine that I didn't know of, but you guys probably do, especially if you play softball and things like that. But then after that was over, I watched the pitcher of this team, the starting pitcher of that day. The catcher was already on her knees where she had been catching. The pitcher came over and knelt before the catcher, and they grabbed hands, and then you could see in that moment that they prayed with each other. It was really cool to see this. And so it was a great high point. And I got a chance to talk to a couple of them after the game, even though they had lost, and I said, you know, you guys really win in the way that you carry yourselves. And so it was a great high point for Angela and I in this moment. But I mentioned to you in this same afternoon, we had a low point. Well, the low point is on our way to that game that afternoon, Tuesday of this past week, we were driving to Lafayette. Well, the way you get to Lafayette, the way I went is I went and I was on 840 and I was heading toward Lebanon on 840. So I'm eastbound on 840. And at about mile marker 69, we could see something happening in the westbound lanes, and we could see no lights, no, nothing, nothing had occurred yet as far as emergency vehicles. But we get there, and we see a car in the grassy median. We see another car, and then we see a car crashed on the westbound lane, and the traffic has stopped. And then we get up, and we're not quite there yet, but we see something in the road. And the closer we got and the closer we got was a person laying in the road in a position that they wouldn't ordinarily lay. And what gave us the dead giveaway is, you know, normally if people had arrived and there were no EMS people there yet, and um, usually if somebody was with somebody, they'd be tending to them, they'd be close to them. That person was there and everybody else was over here, which give us gave us this great insight and understanding that that person had probably just died in that automobile accident. And their last place was in the road in 840 West Bain Lamb. And that, in that moment when we saw this, Angela and I just broke into prayer. And we said, Lord, if there's life that can be saved in this moment, would you save that life, please? And we wore that, even though we were on a high point afternoon, we wore that like a weighted blanket. And if you know a weighted blanket, you know you've got it on. It lets you know always that it's right there. And so we, we had this. One moment, someone was driving. Perhaps they were going to a ball game, doing something, going somewhere. And the next moment, an accident occurs, and their life is over. Church life contains high points 
and low points. Can I remind you that life is precious? Live it to the full. Do the right things for the right reasons. You see, life is short, and one day each of our lives will end, and we will appear before God, our eternity hanging in the balance. I hope that that person who died in that moment believed in Jesus as Savior before that moment. You see, either way, when that moment occurred, it was settled forever. I hope you have it settled, whether you are on the phone, whether you are online with us, whether you are in this room, I hope that you have it settled. And if you don't, don't leave without having it settled. But I also pray that if you have it settled, that you might do something bold and daring, even in this moment. Ask the Lord to put somebody on your heart that is not yet settled. And then ask the Lord to put them in your pathway so that you can share with them the most important thing in the whole world about Jesus. Because if their life ends before they get it settled, it is settled eternally for them. You get that, right? Once we pass, once we die, it's settled one way or the other and seek to share Jesus with them. I'm asking you to stand with me. We're going to read from John chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 15 to 29. Because one of the things that I said after Angela and I prayed as we were driving down the road is I said, Lord, I know that you're going to build this experience, that Tuesday afternoon accident experience. You'll build it into the service. I try to be open to what the Lord is doing every day in my life, and I don't think anything happens that I'm supposed to discard. So we'll see how the Lord chooses to use that. Picking up in verse 15 of John chapter 6, is therefore when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing, and so when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. 
Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. And then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Keep your scripture open. You may have a seat. Keep your notes ready. Jesus had just completed what we talked about last week was the feeding of the 5,000. We talked about that. Jesus ends the event because the people we see in verse 15 had the wrong idea. They were getting ready to try to position Jesus, even if by force, in a kingly position. And Jesus decides that uh, they've got the wrong idea of him. Matthew 14 and Mark 6, I mentioned these to you last week as they inform these details uh, a little bit better, said that Jesus sends the disciples to get into the boat to cross over Capernaum. So it gets to the point of the feeding of the 5,000 where Jesus has taught all, everybody has ate all, the, the, the leftovers are collected all, and Jesus says, you disciples, you go. Get into the boat and go over. And Jesus sees everybody off, and then Scripture tells us that Jesus goes up to the mountain to pray, to spend time with his Father alone. Verse 17 says that Jesus was not with them when they left. It's an important part to remember. Verse 18 describes a storm that rises up on the Sea of Galilee. Now, storms were typical in this area. I read a little bit about because of the way the, uh, the Sea of Galilee sits uh, at uh, its sea level and the mountains that are around it and how the breezes can come in. And storms can come up all the time in this area. Church, can I tell you that storms happen in life? But catch this. And if you don't read God's Word slowly and allow the Spirit of God to inform you as you're reading God's Word, you could miss things like this. But Jesus knew this storm was going to rise up. I believe that Jesus, being the Son of God, knows all things. And so he knew when he told the disciples, hey, you all get in the boat and start heading across. And when Jesus, when they left and Jesus went about doing what he was doing, Jesus knew that that storm was going to arise. So you're saying, Jeff, Jesus will purposefully allow us to enter into storms that he knows about that we don't have any clue about. Absolutely. He's got a purpose. You know, it's interesting. I read a lot today that the reason this storm came up is because the disciples had just come off this spiritual high. You know, they've been on the road two by two. We talked about that, sharing their faith, bringing healing, helping people see. And they came back and said, Jesus, everything you told us that was going to happen, happened. And then they come back, and even though they're tired and fatigued, then the feeding of the 5,000 comes, and they see all of this, and, and they've got these baskets full of leftovers as a reminder of God's faithfulness to them, and they are on this spiritual high. And do you know that the same thing that happens in school, when you learn, 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 you get a test, right? The purpose of the test is not to be mean to you, it's to see what you 
No. And so will Jesus find a situation and put you in it and as a test? Absolutely. I have always believed this, but I am so thankful in my life in recent weeks and months that he has confirmed this to me, that that everything in my life he knows about. And he has a plan and a purpose. So Jesus had a purpose in this storm for the disciples, and Jesus has a purpose for the storm that you are in. And if you're going, well, I don't feel like I'm in a storm. Well, hang on. Maybe you've not obeyed Jesus and gotten into the boat and gotten active about what he's called for you to do in your life. Do you know when you never get in the boat, you never face the storm in the boat? But remember that, because if you don't face the storm in the boat, you also don't get to face the way that God resolves the storm in your life. And I'll tell you this, the way God resolves storms, it's pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome. And what Jesus wants in every storm that you go through is for you to believe in him. Verse 19 says that they, the disciples in the boat without Jesus at night, after a long day, had rowed about three to four miles. That's what scripture tells us. So they were basically in the middle of this Sea of Galilee in a storm. Mark chapter 6, verse 48, catch this. Jesus saw them straining at rowing for the storm. Hold it. At night, in a storm, in a boat, three to four miles offshore, and Jesus is up on the mountain with his Father. And Scripture tells us in Mark chapter 6, verse 48, that Jesus saw them straining. Now understand this for just a second. Jesus didn't go... I think I see a boat out there. Jesus didn't go, yep, that's the boat I put the disciples on. No, Jesus was so in tune with what was going on that he could see the looks on their faces, the straining that they were going through, and what they were feeling in that moment. I just think that's awesome. Do you know that when you're in the storm that Jesus has created for you, you're not alone he is watching you. He knows you. He knows everything that's going on, even when it's getting hard for you. Wow. Church, you need to really get a hold of that. Because if not, we'll read this and we'll go, oh, the disciples were in the middle of the sea at night and Jesus saw them when we just keep right on reading, when we don't take time to realize what we just read. God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and in all places. He sees you, but that's not all. I mean, that would be an awesome reminder that Jesus put us in the storm on purpose. And then Jesus sees us in the storm, and he cares for us. But look at what happens in verse 19. Not only did Jesus see them. Verse 19, it says that they saw Jesus walking on the water. And it concerned them, and they were afraid. 
Now let me read Mark chapter 6, verses 48 and 49 again. I'm referring back to it again. It says, Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea, and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they cried out. There's about three important statements right there that I want us just to make sure that we pick up on. Important statement number one is he came to them. Church, don't miss that. The storm that Jesus sent them into, the storm that he knew was coming, the storm they were in the middle of, in the middle of the lake, three or four miles out, in the dark that he saw them on, he came to them. You get the spiritual truth right there, right? He comes to those that are his in the middle of the storm. He will come to you. He came to them. Not only does he see you and know what you're facing, he will come to you in that moment. Important statement number two. Did you notice what it said in Mark chapter 6? And I know you're not there, so I've read it, but it says that, and he would have passed them by. Huh. Church, you've got to stop and resolve things like that when you go, huh. <laughs> you have to stop and figure that out. Do you know that Jesus will not force his way into your life? He will not force his way into anyone's life. That doesn't mean that he doesn't care. Because he cares, he loves, he died, he arose, he ascends, he's done all of this, and he stands at the right hand of the Father. And Scripture teaches that so that all should repent and come to know him, so that none would perish. So we don't want to make this a statement about not caring, but Jesus will not force his way into their lives, nor will he force his way into yours. Jesus knows you, he sees you, he knows what you need, and he will come to you but that is where he will stay until you do something in response. Verse 3, the important statement number 3 I want to take from that is, they cried out. And Jesus responded. You see, Jesus is waiting. He knows, he sees, he comes. And he's waiting for you and for people to cry out to him. Back to John chapter 6, verse 19, it says that he said, it is I, do not be afraid. I saw other uh, translations. Jesus said, I am here. You know, we talk all the time about the I am's of Jesus. Jesus said, I'm here. He lets you know, he says, I am what you need. Jesus puts you in the storm. Jesus sees you. Jesus knows where you are. Jesus sees what you're straining. Jesus comes to you. Jesus waits for you to cry out. And when you cry out, he says, I'm Jesus. I'm what you need. Look at verse 20. I'm sorry, verse 21. It says, then, and we could preach a whole sermon on then, but let me tell you quickly what then means, and you sort of know what then means. After they cried out. 
after they cried out. The disciples did a very smart thing, a very necessary thing. Look at verse 21. Then they willingly received him into the boat. Willingly. You know, that's how a person comes to know Jesus. Willingly. Asking him to come into their life. And it gets better. Look at verse 21. And immediately the boat was at the land. Now, don't miss this. Now, I can't tell you for sure that I know exactly what this means. But once they received Jesus into the boat, he dealt with their problem. If you go back and read the other accounts of this in Matthew and Mark, it says that once he got into the boat, it was still. If you go back into Matthew and Mark and read about this, this is also the event where before he got into the boat, Jesus, I mean, Peter got out of the boat. You want to go and read that and talk about that. You know, we can talk about Peter. Peter, why did you look down? Why did you lose faith in that moment? Let me tell you one of the things I like about this is Peter got out of the boat. That's a whole different sermon, but so many times... We stay in the boat. Peter had a lot of faith just to get out. But it said that he dealt with their problem and delivered them where he needed to go. Now, you could simply look at this as a miracle, that Jesus got into the boat and then, boom, the boat sped up, got to the land, and they were there. Could God do that? Absolutely. I read people who will bet their bottom dollar that's what happened because why would Jesus go to such power to do such a miraculous thing as to put them there, see them there, come to them, and then get into the boat and to calm the seas. We know all of that. Why would he do all that and then make them keep working hard to row? You see, when you bring Jesus into the problem, the problem begins to get easier to deal with. So I don't know that the boat just instantaneously got to the side. I don't have a problem with that. But I also know that once Jesus comes into my life, the problems that I deal with become easier to deal with, and it might have just been a nice, peaceful rest of the trip. You see, once you get Jesus with you in the storm and the storm is under control, you still got to work through the rest of life, amen, that he's tested you for. So we could see this as simply a miracle, that Jesus got the boat to the shore, or we could allow this to be a greater challenge to our hearts, that Jesus wants none to perish, and that all come to salvation. But he waits for people to respond. I hope you have cried out to Jesus. I hope that you have willingly accepted him into your boat, which would be your life. Verses 22 to 25 you can read that, and there's a lot of uh, in and out, a lot of talking in circles and things like that about this, which is all really good. But the people who had experienced Jesus yesterday, the people who still remained from the miracle of the 5,000, came looking for Jesus the next day. They had seen his disciples leave without Jesus, expected Jesus to still be on their side of the sea, but they could not find him, so they crossed over and they found Jesus. That's a summary of verses 22 to 25. And when they get there and they find Jesus, they go, when did you get here? Their question was, how? What? You know, 
That was their question. But Jesus does not reply to their question. He instead responds to their heart need. Look at verse 26. I'll give you a paraphrase. You do not want me for me. You want me for what you can get from me. And you're going, Jeff, that's a pretty cynical statement. That there are people that will claim to be seeking Jesus, but do not want Jesus to be in charge of their life. They just want Jesus to do things in their life to benefit them, and that's their only reason. Church, that's not cynical. That's truth. We each know people who think in those terms for God. You remember a sermon a few weeks ago about Flopsy, Mopsy, and Cottontail? You're going, Jeff, I've never heard you say that before. Well, you've got a sermon to go back and catch up on. Because people come to Jesus for all kinds of reasons. But Jesus calls them out. And in verse 27, he says this, You should be seeking eternal life, not temporary life. He says, Don't labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. Did you know that everything that you do, everything that you think, everything that you say is either motivated by the eternal or the temporary? Now, you can spend some time thinking about that if you want to, but, and I encourage you to do that, to pay attention to the fact that you're making a decision, eternal or temporary with all the choices that you make. And I'll trust that God will continue to work that out in your heart as you, you do that. But you're either living for self or you're living for Jesus. You cannot do both. There are many scriptures that remind us of that. Verse 27, Jesus said, You should seek everlasting life, which the Father will give you through me. Did you notice that Jesus, again, places himself as the doorway that one must come to God through, that there is no other way. Jesus is saying, what you, not, what you do not need is food. What you really need is life. And that life is a gift. Look at life being a gift right here. Let me read verse 27 again. It says, Do not labor for the food which perishes, that's the temporary, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, that's eternal, which the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will give you. Give. Because God has sent him, put his seal on him for that reason. Jesus could have put it this way, staying in the story we just left. You're in the middle of the lake in a storm, striving to make it within your own strength, and you're failing. And I am the only one who can help you with your sin problem. I am the only one who can get you to where you should be. I can bring you to the shore. And in my heart right now, this song in the sweet by and by is just circling. It's been circling for days. In the sweet by and by, we will meet on that beautiful shore. And when I read this and put that together that way, God reminded me, yeah, I'll get you 
to where I want you to go. Once you willingly receive me into your life. So the people responded to Jesus, and they said, what shall we do? The people wanted to know what works God required of them to be made right. They said to work the works of God. Planting the thought that our lives can somehow be lived in such a way that we can work our way into a right relationship with God. You know, that's one of Satan's greatest deceptions is that you must work for your salvation, that you must do a certain number of things in order to be saved. You know, that's what, there are some people that have been taught that and taught that and taught that, and it's just not spiritually true. Did you see it right there? We're getting ready to break it open just a little bit more. Many people believe what they do will earn them rightness with God. I talk to people all the time, I'd like to talk to more people about this, but I ask them, how do you know that you have the right relationship with God, that you will be in heaven one day? They go, well, I'm a good person. I do these things. Perhaps you believe that your doing is what's keeping you right with God, that your doing is what's secured your eternity. And I can just tell you that that is not true nor accurate. Look at what Jesus goes on to say in verse 29. Jesus re responds very clearly and very simply. He says in verse 29, this is the work of God. Did you notice that Jesus removes the S? There are no works of God. There is only one work a singular thing that must happen. One thing. He goes on and says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Jesus said, there is only one thing God requires of you to be made right. You believe in the one he sent. And he has said over and over again in the weeks that we've been studying this, I am the one he sent. You believe in me. Believe. The only thing God demands of those wanting to receive the free gift of eternal life is belief in his son, Jesus Christ. You know, I'm interested. I talk to a lot of people. I say, and you probably know this. You may have even said this before. Or you know people that go, once I take care of this in my life, and once I take care of this in my life, and once I stop doing this in my life, and once I get this in control of my life, then I'll come to Jesus. Well, that's a works-based thinking that they believe is happening. That it's up to them to get good enough for God to accept them. That's just not spiritual, scriptural truth. Jesus just said, the work of God, the singular thing that God requires is that you believe in me. Believe. If you're a note taker, I want to give you additional scriptures just to really make this point reinforced in your life. That believing in Jesus. The word believe or faith is used 241 times in the New Testament. 98 of those 241 times the word believe is used in the Gospel of John. It is John's favorite word. 
241 times in the New Testament, the word believer faith is used on average two times for every chapter in the New Testament. If you take the number of 241 divided by the number of chapters, two times per every chapter. So as you study God's Word in the days and weeks and the months and the years that God puts us together, be looking for that because it's a pretty strong emphasis in God's Word. But let me just give you a few verses. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 14, 1. Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. John chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Believe, believe, believe. Acts 16, 31. So they said, and they is Paul and Silas in the prison, in the jail, when the jailer said, how can we be saved? They said this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let me give you one final one. Not that this is the last one, but the one final one for today. Romans 10, 9 through 11. Just listen for the repetitive nature here. It says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Believe, church, it is the singular requirement of God. Believe, it is a life-changing decision. Believe, it is the foundation of all of the fruit that will proceed from your life. Because Scripture will teach that out of a life of believing will come love, will come obedience, will come sharing your faith, will come praise, will come repentance. Not so that you become saved, but because you are saved, these come streaming out of your life. All because of believing. Do you believe I mean, do you believe solely in Jesus as the only way to God, the only way to please God, and the only way to eternal life? Do you believe? And as your heart just echoed a big yes, which is likely the response most of the time in a Sunday morning church, I ask you this question. Does your life show the fruit of your stated belief. You see, believe brings life transformation. It doesn't believe, bring options. Scripture will teach pretty firmly that once you believe and are made right with Christ, your life will be different, and then things in your life will happen that are God-honoring. A absence of fruit could actually be the absence of belief. So does your life show the fruit of your belief? Every day, we see people who believe. And every day, we see people who do not yet believe.
every day. I brought up our Tuesday. We saw clearly people seeking to believe and live for God, and they were left wondering if one did. We must be sharing with people about Jesus. We don't want to share with them about church membership or tithing or commands or rules or this, that, and the other. We need to simply help them come to understand God's love and that they can be made right with God by believing. Now, in their life as in mine, once I willingly accepted Jesus into the boat I call my life, He started rearranging the furniture. He started changing me to look more like Himself. That's called sanctification. So we're not saying that people can come to know Jesus and they don't have to do any redecorating of their life. No, we're just saying that People can't redecorate their life and then come to Jesus. It's not possible. But when people come to Jesus through faith, through believing, Jesus will step into that life and begin to redecorate it to look more and more like Himself. Amen? We must share with people about Jesus this simple, life-changing call to believe. And we must do it, church, before it's too late. Because what I was reminded of, and what still I carry heavy, is that too late comes to somebody every single day. 